So if you've read the book of Jonah, uh, you've probably noticed that Jonah is a pretty miserable person. Uh, I, uh, they don't give a physical description of Jonah, but I kind of imagine him as just this like short, hairy, kind of reddish, slumped over, kind of frumpy, angry little Israelite prophet kind of guy. Uh, that's just what my imagination bakes up for me. Uh, but we do see that he's miserable. He, uh, a couple of times throughout the book, he tells God that he wishes that he was dead. Like his situation is so bad, he just wishes that he was uh, just already dead, that God would kill him. And um, what's really interesting about the book of Jonah is that Jonah runs from God's call to him to go to Nineveh. So it's like God calling you to go on a mission trip and you saying, no, I'm going to go to the other side of the world. So he hops on this boat and goes to Joppa, which is the other side of the known world. And the, really until you get to the end of the book, you're, you're kind of in question of why does he do that? Why is that his initial response? Like that's God says, go to Nineveh, and he goes the exact opposite way. I mean, he's an Israelite. He's a prophet. I mean, he's he's a good, moral, upstanding guy, and uh, he he runs the other way. Well, one thing is, Nineveh is not just any old city. Nineveh is, or was, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which basically what that means is Nineveh was the prime city, the key city in the empire that hated Israel. They wanted them dead. They wanted them murdered, uh, tortured. They, I mean, they hated them. I mean, it would be somewhat similar to like today with ISIS in the Middle East, this militant Islamic group that hates Christians, that hates Westerners. It'd be like God telling you you know, in the middle of the night in a dream or something, hey, go over to the Middle East and evangelize to ISIS. You might run away as well. And uh, before we get to the end of Jonah, I mean, what you're thinking is probably, okay, he's running because he's scared. Like he's, he's just afraid that they're going to kill him before he even gets in the gates because they're going to see, they're going to see an Israelite and they're just going to strike him down right there. So he's, he's deferring God's call out of just plain, flat-out fear. But what we come to see in the end of Jonah is much more disturbing than that. And it's also much more telling about us as religious people. So if you were with us last week, when we finished up the uh, second half of Romans 1, that is really directed towards the irreligious, those who... Most of us in this room probably aren't that. There might be some of you who didn't grow up in the church. This might be one of your first times in a church setting. But for the most part, most of us are probably those who were born in the church, raised in the church. And if not that, you've been doing this for a while. You're more religious than you are irreligious. And so, um, so what Jonah, <clears throat> who, is, who is very religious... What Jonah says to God after he denies his call, runs the other way, gets caught in this fish... Uh, which, you know, when, I'm, when I think about the fish, I see like, you know, the kid's painting where it's like this huge whale and with like a little light at the top. Somehow there's a light in this, you know, this whale's belly. And it's, you know, he's got this big open space. I mean, like, it's probably like a huge shark, like where he's not moving around. Like, you know, I mean, he's stuck in there. I mean, I don't know what kind of fish is so big you can stand in it, but, uh, you know, it's, anyways. Um, so he's, he's in this fish. He, he gets 
he finally ends up going to Nineveh. Okay? He preaches a one-line sentence. Uh, a one-line sermon. And he doesn't even like get to, to, to the gospel. He doesn't, I mean, he doesn't even allude to any of that stuff. He just basically says, judgment is coming. And then from the king down to the animals, they all repent. Like one line and they're just undone and they, they, they give up their sin. They confess it and they, and they turn. Then Jonah's response, which you, which you may know, his response is anger. He's mad about this. He's upset, which, I mean, think about it. Like if, if on a Sunday morning you show up to church and Pastor Danny says, hey, I've got great news. We had 20 people put their faith in Jesus last week. Let's give, let's give Jesus a round of applause. Give these people a round of, I mean, you'd, like, you'd be happy. You wouldn't be angry. So why is he angry? Why would you be angry? Well, this is, this is an ISIS member that we're talking about here that just got forgiven that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem like it's deserved. They're too far gone. That's the whole point. Like that's, that is what grace is all about. It's for the undeserving. It is undeserved. And the whole point of Jonah is to take a religious guy and shove it in his face that God's grace is fundamentally that which is undeserved. You don't, you just, you cannot do anything to deserve. You cannot do anything to earn it. That's why it's a free gift to you who's the worst thing you ever did is go to your room and shut your door and pout. And it's, that's why it's a free gift to someone like in Nineveh or someone in, who's an Islamic terrorist. I mean, that's, that is, that is the extreme uh, uh, vision that we get of God's grace through Jonah. So, Jonah, in that last chapter, when he's getting angry, what he tells God is he says, he says, I knew that you would do this. Like deep down, I had suppressed this truth about you, God. I had suppressed this truth that I learned about you in Exodus chapter 34, the most quoted Bible verse in the entire Bible. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, forgiving iniquities, but will by no means past judgment on those who are guilty. He says, he quotes that verse and he says, I knew that you were a God who was slow to anger, who was gracious and steadfast in love. That's why I didn't go because I knew that if I went, you would prove to me that grace is that which is undeserved. And you would rip out my entire, uh, even motivation for life. And right after that's when he says, I might as well just be dead. Um, you might as well just kill me because my whole structure of life is now destroyed. It's now torn down because he is operating out of morality, out of legalism, out of a system in which he climbs his way up to God and has no, uh, no appreciation for God's grace to anybody else. And the whole point there is so that Jonah, this short, stubby, hairy, red, little angry prophet, would receive God's grace freshly. Jonah is a, is a picture of, he's, an, he's, a, he's a type of the religious person, which is what we're addressed with here in Romans 2, which is, uh, which is me and which might be you, the religious sinner, the, the religious rebellion uh, 
That is what we're put up here in Romans chapter 2. So look at verse 1. He's just come out of the end of chapter 1 where he's kind of this barrage, uh, almost uh, military style shooting this, this boom, this list of boom, 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 boom. This is what all they do. They do all this bad. They, they. And if you notice, he never said you in chapter 1. He's only said they. Like he, he's, he's creating this kind of safe distance between these religious Jews and the these pagans out there, you know, uh, the terrible people, they. But then here you get in verse 1 of chapter 2, therefore, you. So he's, he's shifting it. He's, he's, he knows that because he allowed that distance on purpose, them, 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 they, that they could, the religious people, us, could just kind of step aside from that and say, well, that's not, like, I don't do that stuff. Like, I don't, I'm not that bad kind of person. But he addresses them. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you, the judge, practice the same things. You do the same things. You, you trick yourself into thinking that you don't. But he, he's nailing them. He's saying, no, you do, because that list that he gave, it's not really, the very few of them are, are actions, specific actions that you could dodge. Like, oh, I haven't done that. Or, I Most of them are attitudes of the heart, ruthlessness, arrogance, selfishness, attitudes of the heart, and when he's listing those things out, saying them, you're like, oh yeah, all those people out there in the world, of course they do those things. But me in the church, I've, you know, I've been sanctified by my D group. You know, I'm doing pretty good out here. Been baptized, you know. Uh, that's them out there. And he says, no, 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 no. You. See, he's putting everybody on, the, on a level playing field. He's not allowing anybody to get the other upper hand. He's not allowing the pagans to get the upper hand in, in chapter one and say, well, I didn't know. He's like, no, you did know. And he's not allowing the religious person to get the upper hand by saying, well, look what I did. Because he's saying, yeah, it doesn't matter all those things that you've done because you have also done all the things that the pagans have done. He says, you do the same thing. And, and see, what, what happens here is, is we have to be so careful of this as followers of Jesus because, uh, because God is good to us and gracious to us. He works in us. He restores us. We begin to see transformation. And you begin to get so transformed that you forget where you came from. And you forget how you got where you are now. You begin to trick yourself into thinking that you got yourself where you are right now. We get puffed up with our own morality, our own progression in following Christ. And this is the very thing which makes us alienated from God. That attitude makes us alienated from God and cruel towards our neighbor. We pass judgment on them. Allie and I just moved into uh, a house this past weekend uh, over in Cahaba Heights. And uh, right near Bahama Bucks. Has anyone been to Bahama Bucks? Might be the most cheesy snow cone place ever, but I love it. Uh, so we're right next, right next door to, to Bahama Bucks. And uh, we're moving in. 
And uh, we, we had a few people come over and help us on, I think it was Thursday, paint some of the walls. And on Friday, uh, we, we were having a bunch of stuff delivered. Uh, we're getting our Wi-Fi set up so we can, you know, we could surf the web, you know. And uh, also getting our gas set up so we can take a bath, you know. And uh, other things, you know, all those adult things you don't think about while you're in college. You know, someone has to turn your lights on for you when you go into a house. And uh, so, I, you know, I was there during the day waiting for, the, you know, each of these people to get there and set up their thing. And while I was there, we, there was a, a contractor there who was doing some work. That we needed just some stuff done in, in the dining room. It was pretty, uh, it's not like we're getting this, like, we're not like, renovating this house to this awesome thing. It was a pretty like creepy room. And so he's fixing it for us. And anyway, so he's there and, um, I was in the living room, sitting on our couch. And, uh, to be honest, I didn't even acknowledge the guy when he, he walked by me a couple of times, bringing in a few things and, uh, uh, you know, being a good, you know, pastor and on mission for Jesus, you know, not, not even talking to the guy, you know? Uh, and anyway, so he, he, he gets my attention. He walks in and he just says, Hey man, how are you doing? And I was like, I'm doing well. And he said, you know, where, where are you guys moving from? And I said, oh, just from across town. And uh, he said, well, well, you know, what brings you to Birmingham? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm here for school. And he's like, oh, you're in college. And I was like, no, I'm in grad school. He's like, oh, okay, college. And he just kept saying I was, I was in college. And I was like, man, I'm not in college. Man, I'm in grad school. Uh, but he kept saying I was in college. And uh, anyways, he's uh, got talking to him. He's from Mexico. And um, he, uh, he'd asked me, and I was, oh, okay, so you're, you're in school, you're in, you're in college, uh, what are you studying? And I said, oh, uh, you know, right when somebody asked that, I kind of get this weird feeling in my stomach, like, okay, this is either going to go really well or really bad, because I'm about to drop a bomb on him and say that I study the Bible all day, basically, what, is what I do at school. And uh, so I was like, you know, I, I'm studying theology. And he said, oh, that, that's great. He got this big smile on his face. And I'm thinking, oh, well, maybe this guy's a Christian, you know, I'm kind of sharpening one another, I mean, this could be good. And... Uh, and he says, uh, he's like, you know, I've never met anybody who is, who's doing that, who's studying theology in, in school, like kind of like, wasn't condescending, but it's just kind of like, that's kind of weird, but it's kind of cool that you're doing that. And, uh, and so he started asking me questions, like immediately started asking me questions. He's like, so, you know, tell me, um, what are the, what are the differences between denominations? What are the differences between the different religions? And I mean, he's just setting it up on a silver platter for me to share the gospel with him. He wasn't a Christian. He grew up in Mexico, and uh, I think he had attended a Roman Catholic church uh, growing up. And so, um, but anyway, so I, I thought, you know, okay, so this summer in, in, in Sunday, uh, Sunday school this summer, we talked about, you know, being on mission. And I was thinking, okay, so what did I learn about being on mission? You got to contextualize. You got to contextualize the gospel. You got to like connect the gospel to this person's life. And so I'm thinking, the only thing I know about this guy's name is Franco. The only thing I know about him is he's from Mexico. I don't know anything about Mexico. And he does like remodeling, like construction work. And so I thought, okay, I'm gonna use the image of a ladder because he's a construction guy. So this is gonna really hit home. And so I started talking about, I started describing the differences between the religions as a ladder. And, uh, and I think it made sense to him. But basically, I, I just I share with him. I was like, you know, man, so the, really the big difference between Christianity and all other religions, even just like kind of self-made religion, even or organized religion, is uh, all, the, all, all of the religions, it's about building a ladder, climbing your way up rung by rung, keeping yourself stable and trying to make your way up into the clouds to where God is somewhere up there, hopefully. And... Uh, and then I said, but with Christianity, God knocks over our ladders and extends a ladder out of heaven down to earth and he descends on it, comes down to the earth 
lives in our place, dies in our place, rises to life again in our place, and then picks us up on his back and carries us back up to the Father. And he got the smile on his face. He's like, I like that. You know, that makes sense. And he said, you know, he's like, that, that kind of maybe makes sense of why he said a lot of Christians that I met have been so nice, which I was like, I was like, okay, that's good. Cause normally that's not what you hear. It's like, you meet all these Christians and they're mean. He's like, no, I met, I mean, I've met so many Christians and they're all so nice and so welcoming. And so they just like see everybody le- on a level playing field. He's like, that makes sense. He said, you know, it's because, and he started like preaching at me. And he's like, you know, it's because the ladder is knocked over. Everybody's on the same playing field. You can't climb up the ladder and start looking down on people and passing judgment on them for the very same things that you do. That frees you up to have a soft heart, to have compassion towards others because you have, uh, you've received grace. And... And, and sharing that with Franco made me think about this passage and about how we as, as religious people, our condemnation is judging other people. And this isn't just like, hey, uh, there's a difference between judging and saying like, you're doing something bad. Scripture says it's bad, you shouldn't do it. And there's another type of judgment that says, that's bad, you're doing it, I don't do it, I'm glad I'm not like you, you stink, we're different. So just stay down there while you, you know, get your supplies and try to start building your ladder while mine is, you know, as tall as a tree right now, way up there. And uh, <clears throat> so the, the thing about, about that is <clears throat> what it does for us is, is one, it, it changes how we think about those outside the church. It doesn't make us uh, shake our head at other people's sins. And it changes how we interact with those within the church. Because I think what happens so much of the times is we, we do, we judge others in our hearts. And it's funny because the very things that we, we so often judge others in our hearts about are the very things that we are the most guilty of. Not always, but a lot of times that, that's what it is. The, the things that you pick up on really well in other people are the things that you've picked up on really well in yourself. And so we call it out in them as a defense mechanism to deflect judgment from ourselves. And so what, what, what God is saying to us through this passage is that our response to other people's sins should not be wagging our heads at them and looking down at them. It should be a fresh sight of your heart. What I'm seeing in your heart, what I'm seeing in you right now is a mirror of what's in me. Our hearts are the same. They're not dislike one another. They are just like my heart. Their heart is just like my heart. Colin Hansen, in a, in a book that was just published called Blind Spot, says, the heart is never so deceptively cruel as when convinced of its own purity. I'll say it again. The heart is never so deceptively cruel as when convinced of its own purity. It's when you think that you're the only one who's got it down. So Romans 1 talks about suppressing the truth. This causes us to suppress other people. And we isolate ourselves because out of a well of thinking that we are pure on our own. Ray Ortland, a pastor in Nashville, says, Our moral fervor can often be the worst thing about us. Our our angst to, to be a better Christian, to do our devotions more, to be more pious, can, can actually turn into this thing 
that it becomes a completely self-absorbed endeavor. It's not about Jesus anymore, and it's a lot for sure not about other people anymore. It's about me growing up to be a good, nice Christian. Even that endeavor can turn into ugly self-righteousness, which then turns into hypocrisy. But one one of the great things that that we have from Jesus, Jesus knows that this is the proclivity of our hearts, that that our hearts, and you become a a follower of Christ, you get sucked into the life of the church. It's a great and beautiful thing, but one of the things that happens is you end up forgetting where you came from, and all of a sudden you're this nice, clean person. And we forget that. And so so thankfully, Jesus provides to, to us a lot of medicine for that. I mean, Jonah is one thing, We get this here in Romans, and Jesus himself gives us a lot of parables and stories. One thing that he gives us is the Beatitudes. So turn with me to Matthew 5. He gives us the Beatitudes. We get so fired up with our rule-keeping and our perfections and our moral fervor that it cuts us off from receiving God's grace, and it cuts us off from extending that grace. The Beatitudes serve as a really good medicine to this. So I just want to read this along with you and listen to it and catch. I mean, there's what Jesus is saying at the outside of his Sermon on the Mount is is fundamentally opposite of self-righteousness, of what our religion so easily turns into. This unravels this back down to the core of what it really means to follow Jesus. He says, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, he's saying things like, uh, what it's about is being poor in spirit, not rich in spirit, not like I've got all of it together. It's the exact opposite. It's about being one who mourns, one who's meek, that is medicine to our proclivity towards self-righteousness, which alienates us from God and neighbor. Um, and so, you know, if, if that's you tonight, if, you, if you're really sensing just a lot of self-righteousness, a lot of leaning on your own performance, uh, maybe the Beatitudes would be a good place for you to sit for a while, for a couple of days, for a couple of weeks. Um, getting that into your system, kind of working out some of that Self-righteousness. Concerning passing judgment onto others for the very same things that we do. I think if if at any other point in this passage, no other point in this passage uh, more than this points us to Christ. He's saying, you're guilty, they're guilty. You don't want to feel guilty, so you put your judgment on them. You pass it to them. But in Christ, that is, that, is, that is the opposite of the gospel. 
that, that doesn't allow you to see or hear the gospel when, we're, when we get into a habit of doing that. What the gospel says is that Christ does not pass the judgment onto others when he rightfully could. He's the only one who actually could do that. He's the only one who could actually defer judgment to others and just stand there and be fine. He's the only one who could do that. We're not allowed to do that, but we do it. He's allowed to do it, and he does it. He doesn't pass the judgment. What does he do? He pulls the judgment onto himself. He pulls our judgment onto his own head. Takes that for us. He receives our condemnation in himself for us. That, that truth right there brings us to verses four and five when he says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness has a purpose? It's meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Religion by itself, law without gospel, is like a skeleton. It's just dry bones. You need them. You gotta have a skeleton. But if that's all you have, and you don't have flesh, and you don't have life breathed into you by God, like it talks about in Genesis, all you are is dry bones. If all you have is law, that's all that you've got. But the gospel puts flesh onto the bones of law and breathes life, makes us a living, breathing being. It takes us away from just formulas and structures and equations and the black and white system of, I did this many good things versus this many bad things. And it breathes into us life and vitality. Gets our hearts pumping again. The gospel can make a valley of dry bones into flesh and so for you, what, what are the ways that you have defleshed the gospel? That you've just, you've ripped off the flesh and the vitality and you're just hanging on to the skeleton of the law. What are those ways that you've done that? What are the ways that you've settled for building ladders? Doing the work on your, your own strength and might. It's those very ways. It's those very points in which we pass judgment. So those very points in which we're resistant to God's kindness, those are the very points that God's spirit wants to do work in you. It's those parts. So check yourself. This is, this is the challenge for tonight. Check yourself. Where are those points where you pass judgment on others for the very same things that you do? Those are the points, those are the places, those are the pockets of your heart where you have not yet trusted in Christ. Those are the parts of your life where you have not yet believed, where you've not allowed God's grace, his undeserved favor to come in yet. Those are the places where you're like Jonah and you're resistant to that. You don't want to taste that. You want to work. You want to feel good about you. I mean, like, yeah, Jesus and stuff, but also me. So ask God's spirit to, to reveal those things to you, to show those things to you so that you might more freely receive the life of God's grace offered to you in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, you give to us such a good gift in your son. And God, you know we are prone to wander 
And as religious people, we're prone to wander in sophisticated and complex ways where we abuse you. We abuse your laws. We take advantage of your kindness because we feel like we don't need your grace. We think that you like us because of us. God, may you rip our hearts clean of that. May you help us trust that you are kind to us, not on our account, but on your account. You love us, not because of us, but because of you. And God, through this, would you make us a loving and kind and welcoming and forgiving community? We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.